is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name is Matt Brand, welcome to the program. Today you'll hear from a Territory cattle station who used a road train, a plane, a helicopter and a bunch of people just to get the groceries. I tried not to order too many frozen or cold things because I didn't really know how long it was going to be out of the freezer or fridge for. So mainly dry stores and a little bit of toilet paper for good luck. A resources company says it struck gold and copper near Tennant Creek. You'll be hearing from the company's chairman in just a moment. And over in the Kimberley, where the Fitzroy Bridge has been destroyed by flooding, a plan has been hatched to ship cattle from Wyndham across to Broome to supply the local meatworks. We're looking, obviously, and thinking outside the box here to get a solution so that businesses, pastoralists, transport and other industries and communities, that we're all functioning and and back to normality as fast as we can. This is all coming up on today's Country Hour. Let's get stuck into it. We're broadcasting right across the Territory on the ABC, streaming online, and g'day there if you are tuning in via the podcast. Our top story today is about forestry and about Indian sandalwood, which, as you know, is grown commercially around the top end of the Territory and also the Kimberley region of WA. And now, traditional owners on the remote Groot Island are getting ready to start their own plantation. The Andiliakwa Land Council says forestry could play a really important role on the island when manganese mining on Groot winds down. And what's quite unique about Groot is that Indian sandalwood has been found growing natively on that island. Max Rowley spoke to Sustainability Officer at the Land Council, Graham Brown. Well, it's a very interesting species of tree because it's called Indian sandalwood. But some of the genetic analyses shows that it was actually originated from East Timor and Northern Australia and then has spread west across into Indonesia, Malaysia, across to India. And it's a really sought after and considered a sacred tree. And the timber and the oil are very high quality and get used for furniture and for perfumes. So there's a huge market out there. But for the other countries, they've lost a lot of their sandalwood through illegal logging. So there's an opportunity for us in Australia, Northern Australia, to be growing sandalwood in plantations to meet the world demand for sandalwood. And why are you looking at growing sandalwood on Groot Island though? Why does that seem like a good idea there? Well, if the mine, well, when the mine ends on Groot Island, it's been there for almost 60 years, When it leaves, it leaves a big hole. So we're looking for opportunities for a local economy after the mining. And we've got fairly careful or detailed uh, criteria for that. So we want things that are environmentally sustainable, economically sustainable and socially sustainable. So it's got to be a business that's had a, a proven economic benefit. So there's many things that sort of start and collapse, but this sandalwood looks like it's a a solid uh, economic venture. And environmentally, Groot Island is a really special place. It's got no pigs, it's got no buffaloes, no cows, no cane toads. So it's largely pristine, 
So we have to be really careful about bringing in outside species. So we can't do things like grow a African mahogany plantation because that would violate the, the biosecurity restrictions. And with sandalwood, it grows in a few limited places on Groot Island. So it's a species that we can use that's from the island and it's a parasitic species. So its roots connect onto other species, but we can use local Groot Island plants as those host species. And there's interest in the community. Uh, the brother or sister species of the Indian sandalwood also occurs there, and that's part of traditional song lines. So there's there's strong connection to it, and it's not going to violate that sort of idea of environmental sustainability. Yeah, what have the traditional owners there on Groot Island told you about these native sandalwoods? Well, it's it's interesting because... We've had some older people out and we've looked at the brother or sister species and everyone knows that. And then we looked at this and they say, well, actually, they can't remember a, a particular use for it. So they say, yes, we know it, but we don't know in the past if it was used at all. So it's been growing there, but it, it hasn't had such a, a high profile in the traditional uses of plants. But its its brother and sister plant certainly has a very strong role. And where does it grow on, on the island? Well, I would like to know more about that. So we're hoping to sort of do a fuller survey. But we know that at the Emerald River, which is on the western side of the island, it grows there towards the mouth. And it's a very fire-sensitive species. So it just doesn't like getting burnt. So it occurs in these sort of vine thickets, which are next to sort of like uh, paperbark swamps and next to the beach where the sandy soil doesn't grow a lot of uh, grass, which could burn. So it's a very specific habitat on Groot Island that it grows. And in terms of any potential forestry then, where would that be grown? Well, you can grow it in a different environment. So it can grow in the woodland type areas or the other people are growing it in ex-pastoral areas, we'd be looking at growing it in the areas that have been mined out. So if there is mined out areas, how can we use them to support future economy after mining? So we're looking at establishing plantations there. And because it's an, a outside its natural range in that, so then we would irrigate. So we'd have pumps with drip irrigation and would be having fire management to, to stop the sandalwood getting burnt. Does Groot Island have any history when it comes to forestry? There have been a few failures. So back in the 70s, um, the mine, very well-meaning, looked at putting some plantations of, say, river redgum and African mahogany and tamarind and a few other things, but they didn't do very well. and it wasn't really an economic model. So we have to recognise that Groot Island is a remote island and if you want to produce something and transport it off, you're going to have extremely high transport costs. So it's a difficult thing. For standard sort of timber production, the, the economics just doesn't stack up unless you're just providing timber for the local market. So for sandalwood, it's a lot, lot higher in value. So, you know, 10 times the value of, say, a 
uh, cypress pine timber. So then you can start compensating for any sort of extra costs that you'll incur in transporting the stuff away. If you're just tuning in, this is the Country Hour and you're listening to Graham Brown, a sustainability officer for the Unandeliakwa Land Council, about the potential for sandalwood plantations on Groot Island. Now, Graham, you've had the support of Quintus, who is a huge sandalwood producer in northern Australia. What have they told you? Yeah, we're really fortunate to have this collaboration because I think they are the world's biggest grower of Santalum album. So they are helping us. They're interested in supporting Indigenous peoples' businesses. So they have the approach worked out. See, growing sandalwood, you can grow sandalwood and you might not make any money out of it. But uh, Quintus have been developing the approaches to make sure that you get a, a return from it. So how to do the irrigation, the fire control, the weed control. They've sorted out a lot of that down to how do you grow the seedlings in the nursery to plant them out, all those sorts of things. So they're, they're coming across and they're providing all this technical support, which is fantastic. And we should be able to use that and trial sandalwood on Groot Island. It's, it's never a, a fait accompli. So we need to have a trial to see is this going to grow and see whether it will work economically on the Groot Island mined out areas. So there aren't any plans to to clear any additional land there on Groot Island for this? Correct. It's not a species that we want to be clearing forest to plant. It's for mined out areas. And so what have the mining companies there made of this proposal? Well, I think we're really lucky because Groot Island Mining Company, which is managed by South 32, believe that they need to do world's best practice in mine closure. And that includes environmental things, but includes helping the communities establish an economy for after mining. So they're very interested. Of course, there's a lot of the area will go back to bush, but they're interested in helping us in trialling this sandalwood option. That's great. And what has the community made of this idea so far, Graham? Well, there's interest. So uh, we've had a group from Groot Island, particularly some of the more senior traditional owners of the mine site area go across to look at the plantations at Douglas Daly, plantations of Quintus, and they were impressed. So hopefully this year as well, we'll get to go to Kananara and see some processing so they get a, a more of an idea what happens after the plantations are harvested and how they're harvested. But yes, there's definitely interest there. So that visit to the Douglas Daily, what came of that and what's next for the community in Groot Island? Well, the community want to give it a go. The traditional landowners said, yes, we need to trial this. So we'll be trialling it, setting up like a four or five hectare plot and then maybe another one the year afterwards and just seeing it that whether it's going to work properly for Groot Island. And if it does tick all those boxes, Graham... What do you see a potential sandalwood industry looking like for the island? Well, you have to get up to a scale that is economic, so that might mean up to a 1,000 hectares of mined-out land going to sandalwood plantation. It's not such a viable thing to have processing on Groot Island, but one of the products is logs, so you can transport them out. 
there's also wood chip. So the oil within the heartwood is a very valuable oil. You can chip the wood on the island and export just the heartwood chips. So we're looking at a growing and maybe some preliminary processing and then exporting those products. And then perhaps with our collaboration with Quintus, they could process them further. For example, distilling the hardwood chips to get the oil from within them. That is Graham Brown, who's a sustainability officer for the Endiliakwa Land Council on Groot Island. He says the council is looking to plant the first Indian sandalwood seedlings along with their host trees next year, in the dry season of next year. Now, Richard Henfrey is the chief executive of the sandalwood company, Quintus. Uh, Richard, can you tell us this story from your end, I guess? How did Quintus get involved in all of this? Yeah, well, I guess from our perspective, um, the, the Anadiliaqua Land Council approached us probably about a year ago now um, with this idea. So it was, very much, it was very much their idea. They came to talk to us about whether we thought that um, growing... Indian sandalwood in a plantation on Groot was a viable, a viable idea, and I actually happened to be in Darwin at the time they they visited, so I was able to sit down with uh, with those guys, and 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 I got really interested and excited about the about the project. Um, certainly, there are some there are some challenges that we that we always uh, we always encounter when we're looking at looking at site suitability. Um, but I think the guys were able to answer answer most of those in the work that we've done. Uh, in, in the meantime, in the last in the last twelve months, we've actually found there's some quite good sites uh, on the island in in the uh, in the mined out land that, that that we think could become a you know quite quite valuable uh, quite valuable plantation land. So still very early days, but you feel that this could be viable on Groot. Yes, look, I, I think I think the, the the right thing to do is to go through the proper process and conduct conduct trials and be be really certain. But we're supporting the uh, we're supporting the land council to do that, and yeah, we certainly believe from what we've seen so far the the soils the soil the soil in, in parts of the uh, in parts of the side looks looking pretty good. Uh, there's there's access to water. I guess I was a little bit concerned about cyclones, but um, you know the the team explained to me that the cyclone path generally doesn't doesn't cross over the island so you know we obviously need to look at the data there and look at the uh, experience of the next uh, of the next few years with, with these trials can we talk about the two varieties of sandalwood that grow naturally on that island uh, the elders say that one of them has traditionally been used by locals for bush medicine and the other um, is understood to actually be Indian sandalwood. Now, what's your understanding on that? Yeah, and this was um, this was a bit of news to me. Actually, I wasn't aware there was a there was there was two species there. It's quite interesting that the the species that we know as Indian sandalwood hasn't been used by the indigenous in the indigenous community in the past. Um, but certainly, we're aware that the, the 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 species we call Indian sandalwood did originate in our part of the world, so the north of Australia and across. Uh, Across the the, uh, the Southeast Asian islands, um, particularly Timor and, and out into the South Pacific, actually, um, and we believe that those plants were taken into India, you know, probably four or five thousand years ago, so relatively recently, um, and of course established some significant wild populations in India, and has, has since become a very, very culturally significant and valuable uh, tree. But yes, quite, quite, um, it's quite believable 
that Indian sandalwood is a, is an indigenous plant to, to Groot Island. I, that, there's, there's, there's no doubt about that at all. And are you aware of Indian sandalwood growing naturally in other parts of northern Australia? Yeah, there are a few um, wild uh, plants or wild stands um, remaining. Uh, you know, they're few and far between, and and, I, and I'm guessing no one's ever really gone out and gone out and surveyed them. But certainly, yeah. certainly, we're we're aware of a couple of couple of individuals, and we've we've um, taken some leaf samples from some of those and, and tested the gen- genetics. And they're they're very clearly Indian sandalwood. They've they, they've got a slightly different genetic line, and they've been there for been there for a long time. So. The trials that are set to happen on Groot Island, would you use those local genetics or would you be wanting to plant the Indian sandalwood lines that we see in, say, the Douglas Daly or the Audio Irrigation Scheme? Yeah, so the, so the lines that we plant in our plantations come from our um, genetic, uh, genetic trials where we've selected crosses that are particularly suited for growing in the, in the environments that we're growing them in. Um, I don't know what's planned for this trial, but my sense would be that the, the, the clever thing to do will be to grow some of the local trees and some of our improved trees, and and that should that should be part of the um, part of the purpose of the trial. These sandalwoods are a parasitic plant; they need a host tree next to them to survive. What options are there on Groot in terms of using you know locally grown trees to put in as a host? Yeah, look, that's a really interesting question, um, and we are certainly we're, we're using a couple of indigenous trees as well as some as well as some uh, term exotic species. So, so species that don't come from Australia or, originally, um, and some of the species we've used or we're using now and we've used in the past, we're aware are are present on on Groot. So we think there's options there. Um, but again, that's got to be part of the. Um, it's got to be part of the trial. So the sandalwood needs at least three hosts, three different hosts during its during its life cycle, um, sort of short, medium, and long term. Um, so getting the right mix of host trees has been, we've found, quite an important part of the uh, quite important important part of the, the of the knowledge and the process and, and getting this thing getting this thing right. So certainly, the idea of doing these reasonably long term trials, I think, is 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 pretty important. In northern Australia, we see big plantations in the Kimberley, Douglas, Daly, and in Catherine. Mm-hmm. Is uh, is the market big enough to take on more Indian sandalwood? So, look, I think the um, the, the work that Quintus has been doing um, not not over the last twenty years, actually, but over over about the last five or six years, to to build the the markets for Indian sandalwood and to re-educate the consumers, particularly in you know across Asia. That Indian sandalwood is now available in reliable supply um, from a from an ethical and sustainable source. I, th- I think is you know we're, we're having having great success in 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 stimulating and generating a market, and that's actually one of the great one of the great sort of potentials of this partnership is at the end of the the end of the rotation of a of a plantation on Groot. You know, Quintus as as a partner to that to that project can be there to um to process the wood into into oil or into into finished uh, into finished form um and to sell that wood into the market so you know we see it as quite a as quite a good potential model for us uh, at the moment our plantations some of them are owned by quintus and some of them are owned by third party investors um we think it's a great it's a great idea to have um you know effectively the the land council being a plantation owner um, you know, providing jobs for 
local people um, under the under the guidance of a plantation manager. We obviously like to be that plantation manager, um, but ultimately, where we are together, able to take the product product to market. So, look, we, I, you know, I was my my imagination was um, was uh, sort of intrigued by by this. Uh, it's a great opportunity to, to um, you know, use use sandalwood for good and to help the local community heal heal the land. And I think there's just so many um, positive aspects of this that we're really focused on on helping these guys get 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 up and running, get the trial successful, and learn learn what they need to learn to. Uh, to feel confident to go to the full commercial scale. All the best with it, and thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Matt. Pleased to chat. Richard Henfrey, he is the Chief Executive of the Sandalwood Company, Quintus. It is 10 to 1. You are tuned into the Country Hour. Now, live export ships, they are used to take cattle from northern Australia to markets in Southeast Asia. But what about shipping cattle out of Wyndham just to get to Broome? Up next, you'll hear about some of the extreme measures being considered to keep the Kimberley's only abattoir afloat. Hello, my name's Tom Burrow. I'm a ranger over on Groot Island, and you're listening to The Country Hour. Northern WA's one and only abattoir is facing a very tough start to 2023. Its doors are closed at the moment, And fair enough, the main highway through the Kimberley is damaged and, of course, the bridge at Fitzroy Crossing has been destroyed because of that flooding last month. Now, parts of the Great Northern Highway will reopen today, but for the KMC Abattoir, which is located sort of halfway between Broome and Derby, it won't be enough. The Abattoir estimates that about 90% of its cattle come from the eastern side of the bridge. And it's now actually looking at options to start shipping stock out of Wyndham to get across to Broome. Here is KMC's Chief Executive, Michael Rapatoni, speaking to Steph Sinclair about the challenges they're facing. The road from KMC through to Willair that's damaged, that three-kilometre stretch, stage one is a really soft opening and that's only really open 8am to 4pm, but very light. It's a gravel track, a single lane track. So with predominantly all our catchment of cattle from the Fitzroy and the east side of Willaire, we can't see any solution to hauling cattle through those roads. And then we still have problems with the Fitzroy Bridge as such and those punt barges are only really taking live vehicles and, and people. So we as an industry are still left without a solution at this point. Right. Okay. So the key repair work that you'll be waiting for will be that repair work to the Fitzroy Bridge? Absolutely. That's critical for this industry as in processing cattle and live export through Broome is absolutely dependent on that bridge reopening Mm. and finding a solution or alternative solution for our cattle to be pushed to the west side of the Kimberley. How much of your cattle does come from the east Kimberley, from that eastern side of the Fitzroy Crossing Bridge? We estimate roughly 90% of our cattle from that region. Wow, okay. And are there any other ways around this? We've got the barge system, but obviously that is potentially not fit for purpose. Is there any other way around this? Absolutely. We have contracted cattle 
and we're looking at potentially sending a boat from Wyndham through to Broome for that contracted cattle. So we're working really hard there as businesses to, to get a solution and really looking for the government to, to step up and either subsidise or provide access to these avenues. Mm. So has that ever happened before, transporting or shipping cattle from the East Kimberley to Broome for processing? Not in the recent future, definitely. The roads obviously are a better mechanism to transport cattle to our facilities and to the port. We're looking, obviously, and thinking outside the box here to get a solution so that businesses, and and I'm talking businesses, it's not only the KMC business, but everyone else that depends off that, as in pastoralists, transport and other industries and communities, that we're all functioning and, and back to normality as fast as we can. What's the cost involved to get a ship from Wyndham to Broome? We're not quite sure on the final cost at this stage. Obviously, boats aren't running this time of year, so we're trying to source boats and then from there work out the costing once we can source. So really early days yet. From our perspective, is it's just a case of trying to find solutions. And are there any cattle coming from other areas? Can you access livestock from the Pilbara, for example? We're talking with all livestock agents and pastoralists down in the Pilbara and the Gascoigne area. So that's, once again, all options are, are being explored. Without that, you know, 90-odd percent of supply coming from the East Kimberley, will you be able to get back up and running at all? We have retained our staff as best we can and we're, we're open for business. So from our perspective, if we have cattle, we can process and we've maintained that staffing throughout this period on the basis that, you know, we need to be able to plan and, and execute a plan to, to get operating as fast as we can. Do you have a, a rough idea of when you might be able to be operational again? We're planning 6th of March at this stage and we're working really hard with industry and knocking on government's door to ensure that we're back in operation on the 6th of March with some viable solutions for all industry players. That is Chief Executive of the Kimberley Meat Company that owns the abattoir between Broome and Derby, Michael Rapatoni, speaking to Steph Sinclair. I see the front page of the Countryman newspaper, which is the ag newspaper in WA. It's Front page headline reads, it could be one big ship show. Bridge collapse signals disaster for live cattle exports. It says a temporary barge system being installed to ferry traffic across the flooded Fitzroy River should be able to handle cattle trucks, but Kimberley pastoralists have labelled the idea a disaster. Tough year ahead, it would seem, for Kimberley businesses. Hi, I'm Taylor Hebron. I'm from Tamumin College. I'm at Barrima Export Yards with Matt, and you're listening to the Country Hour. And I trust you are well this Thursday lunchtime. In a moment, you'll hear from a resources company that says it struck gold and copper near Tennant Creek. And you'll also hear from a territory cattle station which used a road train, a plane, a helicopter and a bunch of people just to get the groceries. I tried not to order too many frozen or cold things because I didn't really know how long it was 
going to be out of the freezer or fridge for. So mainly dry stores and a little bit of toilet paper for good luck. A little bit of toilet paper just for good luck. That story coming up before one thirty. Just looking at some of these rainfall figures. For the 24-hour period up to 9 o'clock this morning, there's some nice ones there. Dumb and Mary out near Dundee received 21 millimetres. Fish River Stations had 24. Tipperary Cattle Station, 26 millimetres in the gauge. Owen Pelly Airports recorded 16. Bradshaws had 16. Coolibar Station, 21 millimetres in the gauge. Dashwood Crossing, 14. The Tennant Creek Airports had 15 millimetres. Alexandria Downs in the Barclay, 21 millimetres in the gauge. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Sally Cutter is there this afternoon. And Sally, there's a big blob of cloud and moisture to the northwest of the Territory this afternoon. Oh, yeah, I think that's a really good description. It's a big blob. It's just, we've got the westerly winds. We do have strong winds potentially on the, the west coast. The westerly winds meeting up with the southwesterly winds along that that western through the Daly district and it's just producing some pretty good rainfall. Started off with the there's a bit of a line down to Central Pass yesterday afternoon and the west end of that came up through the Gregory and into through the Daly and that's started it off this morning. But yeah, it's just everything's just fired up. We had a little bit of heat and we've had some pretty good rainfall total since nine o'clock. Charles Points has had eighty six point two millimetres. Wow, since so, 9am. Yeah. yeah, since 9am. Dumb and Mary's got another 25.8. Fish River, 20, another 23.2. So there's been some pretty good falls to, to along those coastal parts. So, it, yeah, it looks like it's settling, settling in because you look at the radar and it's all the way down, to, right down to what air. So right through the, the western half of the Daly District, we've got some pretty good showers and storms down there. And even down to... Towards Broad all the way, we've got some more storms down there that's they're fired up already. So it's going, we're starting to move into a wet sort of period, so we've plenty of rain. Yeah, so tell us about the next few days for the top end and the talk around a monsoonal burst. Okay, we've got a monsoonal burst. The wind's certainly picking up through the Arafura Sea as we go into the weekend. The, what's happening is we've got the low-level trough over the top end at the moment. We've got the middle-level trough moving down out of the Arafura Sea over the top end, so it all nicely stacks up. So we get this real, this good monsoonal flow, the trough sitting through the top end. We may see a low develop in there, and it all we've got all the ingredients for it to be sort of a wet few days. And yet over in Queensland, there's tropical cyclone Gabriel tracking parallel to the coast that's not affecting the territory sometimes that can suck all the moisture away from the top end yeah i think it's far enough away so it's it is out there it is sort of certainly impacting sort of the queensland area but it's, we're seeing those it's far it's, it's well off to the west it's, once i get far enough away they don't actually do anything. There's a sweet spot where they start sucking everything in, but this is so there's and even we've got Freddie out off the Pilbara coast, so they're they're well away from each other, and there's enough space in between for us to have a have monsoon. A good, have birth. a good one. Are you willing to say yeah. over the next sort of three four days uh, how much rain could fall in certain areas? Oh, uh, we, we're looking at 
to by the time we get to Sunday, we could see some widespread falls of 30 to 50 millimetres, and even some of those isolated falls up to 120 millimetres. We will see the the rivers respond. We are keeping a very close eye on what was actually happening, but it looks like so there's the rainfall totals at the moment aren't quite big enough to to really get get too much to happen. But we, as I said, we are looking at them and we're doing redoing the calculations each day to see what the rivers could get to and when if with the various rain forecast rainfall totals that we're expecting. Okay. So anything else we need to be aware of this afternoon? No, that's probably we've got a strong wind warning current for the Beagle Bonaparte coast and then tomorrow that extends to the North Tiwi coast and Arafura coast. So the winds are picking up, so the strong winds are picking up. The and just the fact that we are going to see some rainfall increasing right across the top end. So if to so just be aware that the roads will so the dirt roads will get a bit a bit boggy potentially and, and if any of the rivers do come up just remember so if it's flooded, forget it. Okay, thanks for your time, Sally. That's okay. Sally Cutter there at the Weather Bureau. It is ten past one on the country hour. Big news this Sunday. This week on Landline, devastation in WA's Kimberley region, rebuilding in central New South Wales, and the upside of flooding, revived wetlands for birds. It feels very special, I think, when you come into these places and, you know, we have sort of between 30 and 50,000 breeding pairs in here. You're maybe the only person that these birds have seen so far. That's Landline Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Yep, Pip and the Landline team are back this Sunday. Keep an eye out for that market report. How good's the market report? Now let's uh, turn our attention back to the weather and this monsoonal trough, this burst that's happening across the top end. A lot of cattle stations are hoping it delivers the goods. Mataranka Station's Doris Bayless says... At her place, there's plenty of green grass and healthy cattle getting around, but she says their surface water could really do with a decent downpour. We are really happy to have green grass around us everywhere. We are getting steady falls of rain, a couple of mils here and there. We might get 10, 15 mils every couple of days. It's not filling up the dams as we would like, and we haven't had any good downpours like you normally expect to see. I know Catherine's had in excess of 150 mils in one drop, whereas I think we're at 50 mils so far in in one hit. So we would definitely like to see more coming. The the creeks aren't haven't run a banker yet by any means. They're they're flowing, but that's all they're doing is just flowing, whereas last year we had a stretch of water that would have been a couple of K wide and took out a couple of fences, and we definitely have not seen any of that this year. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they stopped running soon if we don't get anything heavy upstream. Right, so that's what's been missing for you this year, just heavy downpours, the bigger rains. For sure, yeah. I know I'm not going to complain about the wet season because I know some people have had far too much. Uh, So we're still very happy and compared to to years that we've had in the last couple of years, still happy with the season. At least we have got green grass, but there's no subsoil moisture whatsoever. Give it a couple of days and we'll be in dust again and watering lawns. So no, we definitely want this season to continue on for a bit longer and to see a few heavier falls and I hope I'm not jinxing everyone by saying that 
<laughs> Where does this put you um, then looking into the dry season at the moment? Well, we put in an awful lot of waters or due to the last couple of years because we had such dry seasons, so we really needed to safeguard ourselves so that we weren't in that same position again. So we have got additional waters to, to rely on, but our dams will not hold off as long as what we would like them to. So we'd like to see them full, we'd like to see them overflowing, and we certainly haven't seen that to date. How are they looking? Like, are they at least, you know, um, getting towards full? Uh, probably if they're full, they're only just there and they just haven't had that good flush. You want to see a really good flush rather than just trickling in. You want to see a clean out, really. And, and they're not getting that right now. And you mentioned plenty of green grass, though. Uh, how are the cattle looking, at least at the moment? Oh, the cattle are looking fantastic. We, with this dry weather that we're getting at the moment, we've got beautiful sunny days. Uh, your seed heads are drying off and your cattle are just turning inside out. So they look absolutely great. They're enjoying this weather immensely. Uh, and if we keep getting a bit of rain, a bit of dry weather, it just, it's, it's really good season for, for them. Any ideas when the, the mustering season will kick off for you? Oh, we're probably, we're probably six weeks away before getting started. We're always shifting things, uh, bits and pieces, but for now it's fairly quiet in, on that, in that respect. But, yeah, probably the middle of April we'll, we'll hook in and, and then it'll be all systems go. In the meantime, we're all systems go doing all the maintenance and catching up that we haven't done over the dry season. So there's not really a lull in the wet season by any means. We're still, we're still full steam ahead. And so what is on your weather wish list then for the next few months, if you could have exactly what you wanted? Uh, I want the wet season to keep going until at least the end of March. Uh, a few heavy downpours in between, not anything too drastic, uh, just enough to have a perfect wet season is all we ask for. <laughs> Here's hoping. That would be great. Thank you. I'd appreciate that if you could. <laughs> That is Doris Bayless from Mataranka Station speaking there to Max Rowley. It is 16 past one here on the Country Hour. A resources company says it struck high grades of gold and copper about 45 kilometres to the east of Tennant Creek. Shares in Tenant Minerals jumped as high as 25% yesterday after the company released its drilling results. Chair Matthew Driscoll says it's an exciting time for his company and its Bluebird project. Yes, well, we've had a drilling program going now for near on two years and the latest drill hit from Bluebird is fairly spectacular. We've had some reasonable hits over this journey, but the last one had a high-grade gold zone over 11 grams per tonne, as well as some pretty big copper sulphide zone rating over 10% copper. And obviously, copper at the moment is uh, uh, in demand. So this program's been rolling out, and I've been involved in mining for many years, and, and this looks very exciting from, from our perspective. Why is it so exciting? Because the hits that we're getting... Uh, have been strong with, with high grades. And it's not just one hit that, that occurs from time to time, it's several hits. So uh, we feel that there's potential for Bluebird to be several million tonnes uh, of uh, similar high grade 
as other the other deposits in the area, uh, Pico, which was 20 k's to the west, and they uh, had 3.7 meters at 4% copper and 3.5% grams a ton of gold. So, how are you so, feeling after that discovery? So, look, you know, we're an exploration company, um, but you know, the board's fairly excited. Um, we have funds in, the, in to to roll out our drilling program, um, which 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 is great. So. Um, and you know what the next program which won't take too long to roll out and we feel as if that'll be successful as this one has been and what's next for you guys what's the next steps from here on well the next step is that we're assessing the uh, the holes at the moment the board will meet again and, and we'll continue this this program but we'll look at that and uh, get some uh, answers from our um, exploration team and and work through that for the next stage Matthew Driscoll, who is the chair of Tenant Minerals, speaking there to Victoria Ellis. He says if all goes to plan for his company, he would hope to start mining that deposit in the next five to ten years. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year, with ten categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au Proudly supported by the Kandinan Group and ABC Rural. Now there's been some big rain along the Queensland NT border this year and for some cattle stations that means roads are cut and they can't get in or out. Danielle Doyle is the cook at Midibar Station and explain to Emily Dobson how they've used a road train, a plane, a helicopter and a team of people to get their hands on some groceries. Uh, So we've finally managed to get a pretty good wet season. Uh, We've been pretty dry for about, oh, probably seven, about seven years, maybe, maybe even longer. We haven't had, you know, our normal wet season, but this year it finally came. Um, around Christmas time. So, yeah, the last time I was off the station was oh, the 20th of December. So I haven't been anywhere since and it's rained. So when it rains here on the station, the only way out is by chopper or plane. And we don't have either of those here based on the station uh, because we've got about oh, 200, 160 k's down to the Barclay Highway. Uh, it's all dirt. So that's not passable after, you know, sort of 10 mil of rain, you know, puts that out. So, yeah, we can't go anywhere. And being that you are the station cook, you're obviously very well aware of what is in the kitchen, what's running low. Being stranded for six weeks, what has that done to you? What has that meant for your supplies? We're used to the wet season. We know it's coming. So normally in October each year I do a really big, uh, a wet season order, I guess, because we normally get a store truck out here every two weeks from Mount Isa. And so back in October, I really stocked up majorly thinking, you know, we probably won't get another truck in until maybe March this year. So I have that in my head each October and I always make sure I stock up frozen gear, cold gear, dry stores. And my biggest fear 
over the past 15 years has been running out of toilet paper. So I guess I've been panic buying toilet paper since since 2008. So we always make sure we've got heaps of that on, on hand. But yeah, I just found I was running out of a few things. It wasn't it wasn't totally desperate, but I just needed to do a bit of a Woolworths order. So yeah, did that a couple of weeks ago and, and had fun trying to get that in. Run me through how you actually got that from the Woolies store in Mount Isa to your kitchen table. Yeah, so we placed the order... Oh, a couple of weeks ago on a Friday, and then Hawkins Transport go and pick that up on a Tuesday from Woolworths, load it all into their refrigerated truck and, and you know, it's a, road, it's a road train. It's normally got a couple of trailers on. And then we had that delivered to Sedan Station, which is down on the Barclay Highway, and it's owned by the same company that we work for. And then the Alexandria plane, who is also part of NAPCO, flew down to Sudan, picked up their stores and our stores and flew them back to Alexandria Station, which is our neighbour to the south. And then they loaded all that into uh, a chopper and the chopper brought it up to us. Quite the service, really. So, yeah, they were fantastic. Huck and Sal down at Alexandria and everyone involved um, yeah, Wayne and Cass down at Sedan, everybody who helped us yeah, get our order and then Rick, the chopper pilot who, who flew it in. It, and then when the, when the chopper landed here, it was a week from when I had ordered it on Click and Collect. When the chopper landed here, like, you know, that, that's normal for us. But I thought, you know, people in the cities and towns even don't, they probably don't realise, you know, just what's involved in, in getting an order to to us way out here in the middle of nowhere. And choppering in groceries, have you had to do this before in a good wet? We have. Uh, we've been, well, like I said, it's been pretty dry the past sort of seven years. So we've we've sort of not had to do it lately. But I, when my children were babies, I remember we had to fly some nappies in one time. Uh, so the plane from Alexandria they got the nappies delivered to them and then then they put them in, they emptied them out of the boxes, put them in potato sacks and the plane flew over just near near our sort of uh, entrance to the station and threw these nappies out the window of the plane because back then we didn't even have an all-weather airstrip so the plane couldn't even land here. So, yeah, that was pretty interesting. And is it a pretty costly exercise then? Oh, absolutely. If you think of, you know, Avgas and flying a plane to pick up the groceries from down on the highway, taking them back to one station, loading them into a chopper. Yes, that that is very costly. What did you buy? What was on this iconic shopping list? I tried to keep it really to the bare essentials. I tried not to order too many frozen or cold things because I didn't really know how long it was going to be out of the freezer or fridge for. So it was just sort of basics like uh, UHT milk, UHT cream, a few bits and pieces from the freezer and fridge, some onions. Um, yeah, just sort of mainly dry stores and, and a little bit of toilet paper for good luck. <laughs> that is Danielle Doyle from Midibar Station near the NT Queensland border. Danielle, a.k.a. Miss Shardy. And I'm told Miss Shardy, 
has got a cookbook, a new cookbook coming out soon. So watch out for that. She was speaking to Emily Dobson. That story and some really cool pictures are up on the ABC Rural website right now if you want to go and check that out. And while you're there, click on the story about the English farmer who has broken the Guinness Book of World Records for his wheat and barley yields. So this bloke, Tim Lemmyman, he's got a 600-hectare place. His wheat crop went 17.96 tonnes to the hectare, and his barley went 16.21 tonnes to the hectare, which beat his previous record by two tonnes. Now, to put this into a little bit of perspective, remember that wheat crop that was grown near Ali Karung in the Northern Territory last year by Paul McLaughlin? Uh, that was done under a centre pivot, went really well, and Paul got about seven tonnes to the hectare. This guy's done 17 tonnes to the hectare. The story's up online. Go and check it out. Keep it rural.